Good morning. Great to see you all this morning. There's no one who doesn't love a good redemption story, a story where someone picks themselves up from their bootstraps and rises above their station. I can tell you a great redemption story that happened last Tuesday night when the Australian men's cricket team took on Afghanistan and it looked very certain that Australia was going to lose until Glenn Maxwell scored an amazing double century and won us the game. But most of you aren't cricket fans, so I'll give you another great redemption story. In 1947, Andy DeFries was a banker who was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in prison for the murder of his wife and her lover. Despite the charges, Andy continued claims he was innocent, but his cold, calculated demeanour led everyone to believe that he did it. While doing life in prison, Andy formed a friendship with Red, who, was a, who had talent in finding things from the outside. Red is played by Morgan Freeman there on your right. The first instance that Andy asked Red for anything was a rock hammer, a tool that was necessary for his hobby of rock collecting and sculpting. Red thinks Andy's intentions was to dig his way out of prison, but after seeing the size of that rock hammer, that idea became quite laughable. Throughout his time in prison, Andy achieved great things. He assisted many guards and the wardens with their finances using his prior experience as a banker. He developed one of the greatest prison libraries after petitioning many people on the outside for books. He also engineered one of the greatest prison escapes. One morning, as the prisoners were being summoned to wake up and leave their cell for roll call, there was no Andy to freeze. The guards raced up to find that Andy was nowhere to be seen. Through many years of digging away at the walls of his prison, using that very rock hammer, he was able to create a tunnel hidden behind a poster on his wall. Now, that is the plot to the 1994 film. Does anyone want to guess? Shawshank Redaction. Sorry for all the spoilers. It did come out in 1994, so it's almost 30 years old. Um, it's a film that grips your heart because it shows one man's efforts to pick himself up from his bootstraps and rise above his station. Today we're going to be looking at a different redemption story where God will bring redemption uh, for the benefit of two other people. In many ways, this passage is a picture within a picture where we'll see how God will work to redeem Zechariah, but we'll also see um, something bigger as we'll see how God will work to bring redemption for Israel and everyone else. In life, uh, there are some opportunities that are considered very rare. And Zechariah, he was granted one of these. He got a chance to administer the burnt sacrifice in the temple. And as he was undertaking his duty, the angel Gabriel appeared to tell him some good news. His wife, who is old and beyond the years of childbearing, will have a son and they will name him John. Now, that was a significant moment for Zechariah. Two very rare things were occurring at that exact instance. One I've already mentioned, he was given the responsibility of ministering the burnt sacrifice, but the second was witnessing an angel speaking to him of good news, which was hard for him to believe. And in that moment, he asked a question that revealed that he didn't believe in that good news. 
the consequence for his disbelief was that he would be mute until the days when these things would be fulfilled. Well, fast forward nine months and we are at the bedside of Elizabeth, as Tim has read to us today, as she was giving birth to this son, who they will name John. And in verse 58, her neighbours and her relatives are overjoyed for Elizabeth as they understand that God has shown her great mercy. They are overjoyed because they know that it's very rare for an old woman to become a mother. The angel's message spoken to Zechariah on that day has seemingly come true. Eight days later, the new parents take baby John to get circumcised. Circumcision is a bit of an odd custom for us today, but for the Jewish people, it was a way to indicate that you were part of God's people, harking back to that great patriarch Abraham. The reason to do it on the eighth day was that it was commended in the Torah. And because Zechariah and Elizabeth were a law-abiding couple, they decided to have it done in relation to God's law. And as the ceremony takes place, they arrive at the bit where the baby needed to be named. The assumption was that the baby would be named after the father. But as readers, we know that this baby wasn't going to be any normal baby. For we already knew that this baby would be called John. So in verse 60, Mary speaks up to her neighbours and relatives. She says, no, 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 no. He shall be called John. Now, how Elizabeth knew that the baby was meant to be called John is a mystery. She wouldn't have gotten it from Zechariah. He can't speak. So how she was able to know, well, our story just doesn't tell us. Now, this completely bamboozled everyone in attendance. No one in Elizabeth's family or Zechariah's family was called John. And so they looked to the father for an answer. Now... Zechariah may not have been able to speak, but he was definitely hearing everything that was taking place. And as the patriarch of the family, he got the final say. And so everyone turned to him to inquire what his choice would be. Was he going to choose John or was he going to choose Zechariah? Now, if that moment in the temple nine months earlier was the defining failure of his life, then this moment was his defining success. For he could have continued in his disbelief. He could have chosen not to trust the plans that God had revealed to him. He could have said, no, the baby will be called Zechariah. Or he could respond in faith. What was he going to choose? Well, Zechariah, he isn't one to shy away from creating a bit of drama. Instead of just pointing to Elizabeth to indicate that her response is the correct response, he motions for a writing tablet, which was a bit of an ancient tool that's covered in wax that you could write on, kind of like a very primitive etch-a-sketch. Carrie has one at the moment. That's what I imagine it to be, kind of like. And from his hand, he gives a very definitive response. His name is John. Now, we can't deny the magnitude of that response from Zechariah. Through his actions that day at the temple, it was clear that Zechariah didn't believe in God. He had given, wait and, he had given up waiting on God's promises coming to fulfilment. See, it had been 400 years that God 
had interacted with his people. 400 years in which God hadn't sent a prophet. 400 years that God hadn't given any instructions to his people. So for Zechariah, his faith in God was just superficial. His role in the temple, well, that kind of gave him purpose. And God's law provided him a way to live his life. But he did not believe in God's promises. So for nine months after his temple failure, Zechariah, he had to re-examine his position with what he had just witnessed. Now a lesser man, he would just justify away the experience in an unformed manner. But Zechariah could no longer be in denial of God's goodness to him. That even though it would have been painful and difficult, that for nine months God was working on Zechariah to see the bigger picture. That was God's redemption of Zechariah, where he would believe in his plan for his world. Now, considering everything that happened to Zechariah and the things he had witnessed, to decide to name his son any other name other than John, well, that would be foolishness. But it is a significant moment because it shows that he has come to belief. Now, after his decision, as we see in that story, Zechariah's mouth is open and his tongue loosened, and great fear reverberated throughout the whole community. See, after not being able to speak for nine months, public perception was that Zechariah would never be able to speak again. But the people from their neighbours throughout the whole countryside of Judea, they were fearful because it became clear, two things became very clear. Elizabeth has given birth in her old age. Zechariah has been healed from his meekness. And so the conclusion had to be made that the Lord was on this situation and that this baby boy was going to be someone special. Now, Zechariah, he, could, he, he can now speak. And so what he decides to do is he tests out, he's going to test out his vocal cords with a song. Now, if you're a bit of a keen Bible reader, you may have noticed a bit of a pattern over the last couple of weeks looks a little bit like this. Let me explain that diagram or that writing on the screen. Last week we saw that a great revelation happened to Mary when she was greeted by Elizabeth and so she decided to write a song. You can see that there with three and four on the screen. And a similar pattern is occurring today in our passage. Uh, there's been a great revelation. Um, we saw that in the first part of our passage today with Zechariah naming his son John. But afterwards what we get is a song. It's a similar pattern. But also, even before those two episodes happened, we had this reoccurring event where the angel Gabriel visited them both. Now, what to make of this structure, I'm not sure. But we do know that Luke's intent was to create an orderly account of Jesus' life. And you kind of see the succinct nature of his writing in this first chapter, where he structured that chapter in these very succinct episodes that have a certain pattern. If you've got a theory, let me know. But there's something there, isn't there? As uh, Zechariah begins his song, his opening words, um, he sings this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, one thing that the Jewish people knew from their history was slavery. As a nation, they've been ruled by the Egyptians, by the Babylonians, by the Persians, by the Assyrians, by the Greeks. And at that current time, they were being ruled by the 
Romans, other than those kind of golden years when Saul and David and Solomon were kings of Israel and a couple other smaller kings, they had always been ruled over. But Zechariah knows that something has changed, as we can see there in that verse, for he has visited and redeemed his people in verse 68. That God has, well, as you can see there in verse 69, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah knows this because he's aware of what's happening to his niece Mary, as she is carrying one that will be called Son of the Most High. And for three months he saw that belly grow as she recalled to him, I'm sure, her experience of the angel Gabriel with words that this baby inside of her will rule over the throne of um, his father, David. That's how we know that God has visited his people. For Zechariah, in his current experience, testifies to it. But more than that, he knows this to be true for what has been spoken in the past. As you see in verse 70, for these things have been spoken by the great prophets of old. And their message is that God's people they will be reprieved, saved from their enemies. He knows this from another big promise that we looked at two weeks ago in 2 Samuel 7 that relates to David's future heir, which was revealed to Mary. But he also knows this from another very ancient promise, the covenant that God spoke to Abraham in that part of our song. If we were to Rewind our minds back to the start of the Bible, to Genesis. God gave three promises to Abraham. One, that his non-existent family would be a great nation. That this nation will have a land of their own. And those two things had already come to pass when David was king, when Israel was delivered from all their enemies. But the last part of that promise to Abraham hadn't been fulfilled And we can see it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. That God will bless Abraham and make his name great. That God will bless those who bless Abraham. And whoever curses Abraham, God will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through him. As as we see now, the fullness of that blessing that God spoke to Abraham is seen in God's redemption of Israel coming through God's Son. And this isn't just um, Israel's redemption story, but ours is too. If we were to look at Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, the author, says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. See, this, this is the blessing that comes through the covenant with Abraham that our sins, which made us slaves to our own depravity, that made us distant from God, that has only ever brought us shame and guilt, well, it has been taken away. It's often hard to think of ourselves as slaves, right? But before we came to Jesus, that's who we were. See, a slave has no freedom. A slave has no autonomy. They're constantly being ruled over by someone else. And as much as we like to think that we are free, that's not who we were. We were slaves to our sin. We were like fish trapped in a fish pole who really longed to be out in the sea. But through Jesus 
and his blood shed on the cross, God has redeemed us. For a slave to be redeemed required a repayment, and this is God's payment from our slavery. He sent his son to die so that we may be free from our sin. That is God's gift towards us. Now, in verse 74 in that song, we see that God saved Israel. And the passage says, so that they might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all our days. In the um, Shawshank Redemption field, there's a character whose name is Brooks. He's a bit of an older man who was sentenced to 50 years in prison. And when his 50 years were completed, he was up for parole and released back into society. He found the outside world difficult to adapt to. It had changed. There were now automobiles. He was working a job at the grocery store and he was slow and he found the outside world well, difficult to be a part of. He'd been institutionalised as a prisoner for way too long. He didn't know what it meant to be a citizen. And so, unfortunately, he decided to hang himself. He just didn't understand his freedom anymore. And in a less graphic way, that can be our problem. See, we can understand that we, what we have been saved from but we don't know what we've been saved to. See, when Israel was delivered from the Egyptians, God didn't part the Red Sea because he saw that they were miserable. He knew that if they weren't released from Pharaoh's clutches, that his people wouldn't be able to worship him alone. So he redeemed them so that his people could be freed from the gods of Egypt. This is the challenge for us. God is inviting us to be transformed. Now, if being a Christian for you is saying the occasional prayer and rocking up to church, then you've missed the point of why God has saved you. God's plan for your life is that you would serve him because he has served you. You haven't been free to do what you like, like you once did. For that wouldn't make much sense, would it? What would be the point of that? No, God has saved and redeemed you so you can be for God alone, so that you can serve him. Now, as um, Zechariah finishes singing his song, he's now well aware how history will unfold and and the part that his son will play in that history. See, the old Zechariah, he would have doubted that this is where history is headed, But as we see in verse 76 and 77, he sings about his son. He says this, Child, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. See, as Zechariah remembers the words of the angel and the things spoken to him in the past, he knows that his son will be a prophet in the nature of Elijah, as he calls people to repent as they prepare to encounter the coming of Jesus. His role was to prepare people's hearts so they may allow Jesus, this king, into their hearts so that their sin, which used to rule their hearts, could be put to the side as they come to now follow Jesus. 
This was the work that John was engaged in. For Zechariah now knows that history is leading towards the worship of this new king who will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death so that their feet may be guided into the way of peace. But what about you? Is that where your life is pointing? Does your life show what you've been saved to, to worship this new king? For Zechariah was lost in a world where he failed to grasp where God was pushing all of history until God intervened to show him the coming of his son. See, where we stand in this story is different to where Zechariah in Israel stood. We've seen more of the narrative. We know that Jesus died and that he rose and that he ascended in heaven and that we're waiting for him to come back that one day the world will see the glorious splendour of his reign, where every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. But you might be thinking, those events and promises happened 2,000 years ago. See, there's other things that require my attention. I have work and school and family to prioritise. You know, there's the daily cut and thrust of life to contend with. Like, we're no longer living in accordance with God's plan. As people, we can forget what we've been saved to. We're no longer leaving room in our hearts for Jesus to be king. Now, if you find yourself in that position where you're going through the motions of the Christian life, then put your trust in God again. Put your trust in his plan. Let your life point to the hope that is coming. Show the world what you've been saved to. Now, it's often hard to trust It's often hard not to trust ourselves. See, when we trust ourselves, we feel in control. When we trust ourselves, we dictate what we can think. But like a seesaw, when we trust ourselves, we no longer trust God. As we look at Zechariah's story, we can see that God knew what he was doing, making sure that Zechariah would trust him. And just as much as Zechariah trusted God, we can too. For God has shown himself to be trustworthy. He has made great sacrifices so that we can be redeemed. So as we wait, like Zechariah waited, let us trust God by serving him with our whole lives. Let us pray. Father God, it's often difficult to know um, how to trust you. We know that you spoke to us and you promised, gave us great promises 2,000 years ago. It's often easier to trust our own inclinations and our own thoughts. But as we delve back and look at what you've done in the past, that you are this glorious king that's revealed himself through your son, help us to put our trust back in you, to serve you, to give our lives to you. This we pray in your name. Amen.